John chapter 20. Near the end of the chapter, verse number 28. And Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. Remember the story, Thomas missed it a week ago when Jesus appeared. A whole week goes by and he said, I refuse to believe. And then a week later, when Jesus appears again and Thomas is there, he shows himself to Thomas. And the result being that Thomas makes the fullest confession to be found in the Gospels. He falls before Jesus, at least I assume he falls before Jesus, because I think I would if I was him. And he simply says, my Lord and my God. Each gospel writer has its own take on the resurrection morning. I'm going to be sticking in the gospel of John this morning. And you can read his version of the events that day in all of chapter 20. Let me remind you of the story as John would tell it. It begins very early in the morning. It's still dark. Someone by the name of Mary Magdalene, she goes to the tomb early in the morning while it is still dark. And to her shock and her surprise, she finds that the stone is rolled away and the tomb is empty. What does that mean? All the disciples and all who follow Jesus are still struggling with the events of that weekend. And they are still perplexed because they didn't understand what Jesus had said many times. That he must die and he must rise from the dead. But they didn't understand that phrase, rise from the dead. What parable is this? Because Jesus had told all kinds of parables and maybe they assumed This was not to be taken literally, but maybe they thought it was a parable. They still hadn't clued in what this meant. And Mary goes in there, and and, and she sees this tomb. The stone is rolled away. It's emptied, but the penny hasn't dropped yet. She runs. She's upset. She's emotionally tied to Jesus. So she runs and she she goes to find Peter and the other disciple, who we all believe is probably John himself, who wrote this gospel, to report the circumstance. Well, that creates a response in Peter and John as well, because they also are very emotionally tied to Jesus, and they also are very confused by the events of this particular weekend. And Peter and John begin running. Now, John's the faster of the two. John arrives to the tomb first, but he doesn't go into the tomb. He sees the stone rolled away. But he looks into the tomb, and this is what he sees. He sees something very different than the time that Lazarus came out of the grave. 
Because when Lazarus came out of the grave, he came wrapped up in his grave clothes. Remember that? I can just in my mind, I can picture John chapter 11 with Lazarus coming out of the grave and he's all bound up and he's tied. And he had to, I'm sure he had to hop out because he couldn't walk. He was wrapped up tight in those grave clothes. And Jesus would have to say, loose those grave clothes off him and, and let him go. But that's not what John sees. John looks in there and he sees the grave clothes all set aside, nicely and neatly wrapped and put away properly. Jesus didn't come hopping out of that grave, however he came out. That's interesting. He sees the grave clothes folded and lying there. While John is observing those things, Peter, who's the slower of the two runners, finally gets to the tomb and, well, you know Peter, he just does things his own way and he doesn't stop at the tomb. He just bursts right into it. He just runs right past John, goes right into the tomb. Well, John thinks, and I'm adding a few thoughts here maybe, if Peter can go in, so can I. And John also goes into the empty tomb. And your Bible says, when he went in, he saw and he believed. I like that. He saw and he believed. Because you do understand that they're struggling with this phrase. What do you mean he's going to rise from the dead? What does that mean? Well, after this experience and John believes, your Bible says that both the disciples return to their homes to try to digest what's happening here and, and they're wondering about it. But Mary, well, she just wants to linger. And she just stays behind by herself at this empty tomb. And she looks in the tomb and she sees something else there that Peter and John missed. Peter and John saw the grave clothes lying there. Now, I don't know if those angels were there all the time and they just didn't appear at that moment or, or maybe Peter and John should have just stuck around for a few more minutes and maybe they would have seen this as well. And you know what? It pays church to linger around where Jesus has been. You just never know. Don't be in a rush. You know, part of the Christian life is you've got to learn to linger in the presence of God. You've got to learn to meditate. You've got to learn not to be in a rush. Peter and John missed this. I don't know if they would have seen it anyway. But what Mary sees is two angels. The Bible describes the two, not as two young men, but the Bible describes them as two angels. And we mentioned this the other week when we looked at the Lord's table, is that one of the angels was where the head of Jesus should have been, and the other angel was where the feet of Jesus should have been. And every good Jew would automatically understand that was a picture of something else. Because that other something else in the Old Testament, in the tabernacle, in the Holy of Holies, there was this... this um, piece of furniture called the Ark of the Covenant. And the top of the Ark of the Covenant was a mercy seat. At one end of the mercy seat, there was a cherubim. And on the other end of the mercy seat was another cherubim. And God dwelt in the midst. And when Mary looks in, she is no longer looking at a tomb for the dead. She is looking into the Holy of Holies. 
I love that. I, I, I can't say it enough times. But Jesus can transform your tombs into holy places. Come on, that's good news. It's worth a shout. Jesus transforms the resurrection, transforms the tombs of our life, and turns them into sacred encounters with God. Folks, He can turn any situation around. He's risen from the dead. Therefore, He has the power and the authority to change anything to anything else that He wants to. This is the power of the resurrection. Well, amazingly enough, the angel speaks to her. Now, I think of that. I mean, my goodness, if a, how would our response be this morning if an angel, I mean, Michael himself or Gabriel himself, what if he was just to appear in form and you all begin to, to see him and your eyes are open, you can see him, your ears are open and you can hear him and he starts talking to you. What would your response be? How would you take that? <laughs> yeah, we, I mean, we'd probably have a conversation. And how many revivals or, or movements in the world where people have been, you know, we have angelic visitations. And, and, and we can remember in our, in our history a couple of times over the years that there was definitely the presence of angels and there was a, a gift of discerning of spirits where people saw angels and, and heard angels speak to them, and, and very, very little we've been exposed to that, but we have seen it, and we have experienced that in some of the uh, uh, great moves of God we've been able to witness. We've, we've been permitted to see some amazing things over the years. Uh, but what is Mary Magdalene's response? You know, woman, why are you weeping? And says, well, if you moved him, tell us where he is. And, and Mary's response... Because she must have known they were angels. And her response is, well, this might all be well and fascinating. And, and this is a great revelation that I get to talk with angels here. But I'll tell you what, angels, it's not you that I want. Now listen carefully. It's not you that I want. I don't want great experiences. I don't want great visitations. What I want is Jesus. What are we hungry for? What do we want? What do we desire? Here she is talking with angels, and she says, basically, I, it's not you that I'm here for. I want Jesus. Our preoccupation should be with Jesus. Well, she sees somebody. She doesn't know who it is. She supposes it's the gardener. And then he calls her by name. Folks, I love it when God calls you by your name. I love it. Because there's something there when He calls you by your name. It will inflame your heart. It will stir your emotions. It will do your soul good to hear Him call your name. That's powerful. It's powerful. And she realizes, what? <laughs> it's Jesus. And then she wants to go grab him. And she says, well, don't touch me yet because I'm not yet ascended. But I want you to go back to these disciples. My goodness, she's running back and forth to the disciples quite a few times. You know, on that 
resurrection morning. Go back to those disciples, and I want you to make an announcement. Now, I'm paraphrasing here for you. You have heard me all the way through this gospel refer to my Father, my Father, my Father, my God, my Father, my God, my God, my Father. All the way through the gospel, Jesus has been calling God his God and his Father. But he says, make an announcement to those disciples and say, I'm going to my Father and your Father. Something's happened, folks. The resurrection has caused a change of status here. I'm going to go to my God and your God. Something has happened because Jesus is risen from the dead. Well, Mary again runs back to these disciples yet again. I mean, she was covering a lot of miles that morning, I think, running back and forth with these messages. And she tells Peter and John what she has seen and heard and I can just imagine if I was Peter, if I was John, I've been thinking, I missed it. <laughs> Should have hung around a little longer. Um, that same day now, now it's evening time. The disciples are gathered together in a house. The Bible says that they're behind shut doors because they're afraid of the Jews. Now Thomas is not with them. So there's ten of them. Judas is gone. Thomas is not with them. The ten disciples are there. And and they don't know what's going on. They're very confused by the events of this weekend. Where is the body of Jesus? We're hearing these strange reports. Do we really believe what Mary is telling is true? And they're living in fear of the Jews because I'm sure they're thinking they came gunning for Jesus. We're next on the list. I am sure they're thinking that. And they're hiding for fear of the Jews. And nobody knows how this happened because the door is shut. How did Jesus just get in there? How is that possible? Well, it's possible because in the resurrection, what goes in the grave, in some ways is the same what comes out that went in, but in other ways it's different. There's both continuity and discontinuity. Yes, it's the body of Jesus, but it's Jesus' body in a new form, in a new way. There has been changes that take place. And how do we explain it? But Jesus just appears in his physical body in the room through a closed door. How does he do it? That body that had been crucified and put to death is now there for them to see. He's not a spirit. He wasn't just raised a spirit. He was physically raised from the dead. And I want you to notice that Jesus wastes absolutely no time in conferring upon them the Holy Ghost. I want you to catch and hear that. He wastes no time. Time. He will not let 24 hours go by after the resurrection to see that his disciples are filled with the Holy Spirit. Jesus, according to John, we'll get into that message tonight. Jesus, according to John, he says, the purpose of me dying and being glorified is to be able to fulfill the promise of Scripture where you'd be filled with the Spirit. He wastes no time in seeing that his disciples are immediately have some reality with the Holy Spirit. Hear that. That is so important. 
They need to be empowered to proclaim His story. Then in John chapter 20, another whole week goes by. The disciples are in a room again, and this time Thomas is there. How he does it? Jesus just all of a sudden, in his body, is there in their midst. I can just imagine the conversation. Peace be to you, he says. Thomas, by the way, I hear you have some problems or some struggles here. Exactly, Thomas, what is your problem? You don't believe that I'm risen? Did you take a look? Look at my side, look at my wounds, look at my feet, my hands. Go on, go ahead and handle me for yourself, if that's what's going to take, Thomas. But Thomas, once he sees Jesus, oh, come on now, once he sees Jesus, he doesn't need to touch. My assumption is that he falls on his face and he falls on his knees. Now I'm reading that into it, but it's my assumption because I think I would fall. He cries out and makes this greatest confession. Now that I see you in your resurrection, I, have, I know who you are more than any time in my life. I know who you are, my Lord and my God. And that's the resurrection morning and a week later, according to the Gospel of John. Now, John in his Gospel wants to teach us all kinds of things. But his method of teaching is storytelling. He's not going to give you tight theological arguments using heavy theological words that you don't understand what they mean. But he's going to teach by having Jesus dialogue with ordinary people like you and me. And through his dialogue with ordinary people like you and me, we should be able to sense the warm feelings that go with that, the tender characterization. Did you realize that what I just told you, you learn more about Thomas and you learn more about Mary Magdalene in that story I just told you than the rest of the Bible combined? It's all right there. By teaching in this way, John is going to open up to our heart new ways of thinking to receive the truth. Now, I want to show you how the chapter 20 of John, the resurrection story, is the climax to which the rest of the gospel has been moving. Thank God that Jesus died on the cross. But Jesus dying on the cross in the Gospel of John is not the climax of the book. Because if it comes to forgiveness of sins, if that's all that is at stake, then I want to ask you a question to make you think. Does it necessary for Jesus to be physically raised from the dead for your sins to be forgiven? Is that necessary? If his shed blood as a substitute, the penalty is paid by his death, is it necessary for Jesus actually to be raised from the dead to be your substitute? And actually the answer is no. But the climax is not just the forgiveness of sins. There's something greater in the Gospel of John that only his resurrection from the dead will bring the story to its fullness and its climax and its completeness. The gospel is more than the forgiveness of sins. Now listen. 
It is more. Thank God for the forgiveness of sins. But the gospel is far more than the forgiveness of sins. What we're going to see, the gospel is a recreation of who you are. There is going to be another creation. For instance, though the Gospel of John will allude many times to the book of Exodus, the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, or tabernacled among us. The tabernacle of Moses is a picture of Jesus' body, the tabernacle of Moses. His word glory that he uses, well, talks about the glory of God appearing on the tabernacle of Moses. The number of times Jesus says, I am, through the gospel, is a reference to when God appeared to Moses at the burning bush, I am that I am, and and develops all that thought. But I want to not go to the book of Exodus, but I want to show you in the gospel of John that there are multiple references to the creation story. He's going to tell his stories in such a way that shows you that Jesus has the power to create. Jesus has the power to create. There's many references all through the New Testament of a new creation. 2 Corinthians 4, 6, The light that shines out of darkness is shining to our hearts. If any man is in Christ, he's a new creation. 2 Corinthians 5.17 Galatians 5.6.15 Circumcision or uncircumcision, that's not the issue, but it's a new creation. There's so much in the Bible about a new creation. Now, how does the Gospel of John open? What are the first words? Chapter 1, verse 1. What's, what's the beginning? I gave you the clue. How does it begin? It begins with the words, in the beginning. you recognize that from anywhere else in your Bible? Obviously, Genesis 1, 1. In the beginning. What does God do in the beginning? He creates. So why do you think the Gospel of John begins with the same words? Because it is telling you that what I'm about to present to you is the story of a creator. I'm going to show you a person that can create. And it's the resurrection where you're going to see the creation power of God released in the lives of his people. It's the resurrection. Now, let me just give you a couple of clues, and I could be very exhaustive, and I'm not going to be for the sake of time, but I could be very exhaustive in showing you how the Gospel of John is built upon the story of creation, alludes to it continuously. Let me test your knowledge. When was man created in the creation story in Genesis 1? Which day? Well, you all know this, don't you? Come on. What day was he created? He was created on the sixth day. Man was presented. On the sixth day of the last week of Jesus' life, what happened? Pilate says, Behold the man. The man was manifest on the sixth day. Wait a second. What were the last words that Jesus cried out from the cross? It 
is finished. How does the creation story end in Genesis? Thus, the heavens and the earth and all the hosts of them were finished. In the creation story, what did God do on the seventh day? And what does Jesus do on the seventh day? He rests in the tomb. Are you beginning to see the picture here? That this story of the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus is the creation story being told again. Mary goes to the tomb in the dark on the eighth day. It's dark. But God says, into the darkness, let there be light. Jesus was raised on the first day, and John's gospel will insist that you understand that Jesus was raised on the first day of the week. It is a new week with totally changed circumstances. After the resurrection of Jesus, folks, things have changed. And what's the first thing that Jesus will do with his disciples once he's raised and he appears in their midst? Tell me what is the first thing he will do to them. He doesn't wait around for a day or two days or a week to get this done. What's the first thing he does? He breathes into them the Spirit of God, exactly what God did to man in the creation story. And God breathed in his nostrils the breath of life. When you start seeing that John is, is always pulling these illusions from the creation story, there's a message coming out here that the purpose of the resurrection is more than the forgiveness of sins. He wants to recreate your life. You won't shout hallelujah. I'll sit down there and do it. I'll say it again. The allusions to this creation story continuously, and I could give you a more exhaustive list, but I won't. But it's so that by the power of his resurrection, it is more than the forgiveness of sins. He's out to recreate your life. I'll have to do it myself. <laughs> Hallelujah! I'm happy about that. God is good. God is good. The goal of God is a new creation. And the resurrection of the body of Jesus is proof that He can do it because He came out different than He went in. Amen. It went in one way, came out another way. The fact that He can recreate His physical resurrection is the evidence of it. Hallelujah. Now, in the Gospel of John, there are several signs. Matthew, Mark, and Luke will use the word miracles, but not John. John doesn't call these miracles. He calls these signs. Because every miracle or every sign that Jesus does in the Gospel of John 
is intended to reveal something to you about who Jesus is. These seven signs teach truth on many levels, but one of the things that these seven miracles, these seven signs will teach is that Jesus has the power of creation and he's not bound by creation to do whatever he wants to do. The first one, he turned water into wine. That is the greatest miracle of them all. That's the greatest miracle of them all because if he heals a blind eye, it's just restoring an eye back to the way it should function. If he heals a deaf ear, he's just given the the ear the ability to function the way it was created to function. Even if he raises the dead like he did Lazarus, all he's doing is restoring Lazarus back to the life that he had before. But folks, I hope you understand that you can put a glass of water on the counter in your kitchen and you could wait for years and it will never turn into wine. It might get swampy. It might get yucky. It might get old. But I tell you what, it will never turn into wine. The first miracle, the first sign that Jesus does is to prove he can change something from one substance into a different kind of substance. And that was not matched in all of his miracles until he himself rose from the dead. He went in one way and came out another. Lazarus went in the grave and he came out the same way. He rose to die again. But Jesus went in one way, and he came out in another way, never to die again. He has the power to change you from one thing to something else. He's the creator, and he can do that. The second sign that Jesus did was healing of a nobleman's son from Capernaum. Now what's interesting in this particular story is the nobleman's son wasn't there. The distance didn't seem to be a problem to Jesus. He says, okay, you believe, it'll be as he said. And the guy has to travel all the way home to find out if the miracle happened or not. What's the point of the story today? Distance means nothing to Jesus. He is not restricted by distance. He operates above it. Come on. The power to create. Then there's a paralyzed man at the pool of Bethesda, Bethsaida. He had been there for 38 years. Folks, time means nothing to Jesus either. The passage of time is irrelevant to Jesus. He is not restricted by space, and he is not restricted by time He is above it. Then he feeds 5,000. Talk about creative ability. There you go. Five loaves, two fish. You try and feed 5,000 with that. I mean, the same God who could say, let the fish multiply in Genesis chapter 1, has no problem with doing the same in John chapter 6. The power to create. That's Jesus. Then he walks on water. 
He is not restricted, folks, to the laws of nature. He's greater than them. He's larger than that. Then there's a man who was born blind. Who sinned? This man or his parents that he was born blind? Neither. It's for the glory of God. And you have here a picture of Jesus able, listen to this, to change the conditions into which you were born. Try that one again. Change the conditions into which you were born. Newsflash, your future is not determined by your past or your heritage. Try it again. Your future is not determined by the conditions you were born in, not conditioned by your past, not conditioned by your heritage. Your future is determined by the fact that He's the Creator God. Your future is determined by the fact He is raised from the dead. That's where your future lies. And then you have the raising of Lazarus from the dead. John chapter 11. I like that story. Wish I was there. Ah, you should have been there. That's how I should preach it. Because Jesus sighs in the Spirit. Jesus is angry. You've heard me share this before. But if you could read this in the Greek language when it says Jesus sighed or Jesus groaned, that the word that that is used in the Gospel of John is actually a word that describes a horse of all things. It describes a horse not on all four feet. But it describes a horse that is lifted up its two feet into the air and only his back feet. And, 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 and he's going like this with his feet and he starts snorting. He goes, he's, just, he's upset about something. And all the way through the Gospel of John, Jesus has encountered what sin has done to people. How sin leaves people without resources at the wedding. How sin causes storms on lakes. And how, how sin makes people blind or makes people deaf. And how sin ruins relationships and destroys family. And, and, he's, and, he's, and he's a man of emotion and compassion. And by the time you get to John chapter 11, he is just sick and tired of what sin has done to people. And when he's standing at the grave of his friend Lazarus and sees what sin has done, he mostly can't handle it anymore and he's like that horse and he's got to snort and he's got to just grieve and he's about to do something folks what sin has done to his creation he has the power to reverse it he is not bound by this creation he's over it, he's above it He has the ability to recreate. All proven by the resurrection. If he wasn't raised from the dead, you'd never know that truth. His resurrection proves he's got the power to recreate. So when you get to John chapter 20, a lot of the themes that have been rolling all through the Gospel of John you're now brought to see how the resurrection sums them all up. Because you see in John chapter 1, you know chapter 1 verse 12, every kid has to memorize this in Sunday school. To those who believe, He gave them power to become 
the children of God, the sons of God. As many as received him, he gave the power to do that. You know John chapter 3, every Sunday school child has learned the story of Jesus and Nicodemus. You've got to be born, not just of the water, but born of the Spirit. Well, hope you realize that in chapter 20 is when it happens. In chapter 20 it's when it happens, because Jesus can now say, My Father and yours. You become His child. The resurrection makes you his child. That's when the authority is conferred at the resurrection. As a, wor- a verb, the word believe is frequent in the Gospel of John. Do you realize in verb form the word believe appears more times in the Gospel of John than if you put Matthew, Mark, and Luke all together? That the word believe is there more often? Did you know that if you took that verb believe in, the, in all the epistles of Paul, and think of how many Paul wrote in the New Testament, do you realize that if you put all of them, every time Paul mentions that in any epistle, Corinthians, Colossians, Philippians, Romans, all of them, you put it all together, and John has the word believe more than Paul. That's why the Gospel of John is called the Gospel of Belief. But what is it that caused John, the author of this gospel, to believe? When he went into the tomb and he saw it empty, then the Bible says, then he believed. Folks, it is the resurrection that makes your faith possible. If there was no resurrection, you'd be wishing you just be hoping, you just be wishing. But because Jesus is physically raised from the dead, you and I don't have to wish, you and I don't have to hope. Faith has taken root in our hearts because He's alive. He is alive. John chapter 1.14, it says, And the Word became flesh. I want you to think about that because in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth and he created it all. But when Jesus became incarnate, when Jesus took on a human body, he, now listen to this, not just for a short 33 years, but for eternity's sake, he has physically joined himself to creation. I want you to hear this. In Genesis 1, he, re- he created it. In the incarnation, he enters creation so that he can recreate it. Did you catch that? In Genesis 1, he created. But in the incarnation, he joins it physically and becomes part of that creation so that he can recreate it. Folks, there's going to be a new heaven. There's going to be a new earth. Sin will be destroyed from the whole universe. And just like his physical body went in one way and came out another, let me tell you this, this creation, the heavens and the earth and everything within it, will go in one way, but folks, at his appearing, it's coming out another. What's true of his body is going to be true of your body when He comes. Now praise God for that. 
How many are sick and tired of being sick and tired? How many just wish the weariness would leave? How many wish the struggles would just quit? Well, by the grace of God, He can do it now. But I know this for sure. When He comes back, I'll be new. And you'll be new. And you'll never know weariness in your body again. You'll never know depression. You'll never know loads taking their tolls on you mentally or emotionally. You'll never know it again. He recreates. That, my friend, is good news. His resurrection of the body is installment number one on the recreation of the whole universe. Early in the Gospel of John in chapter 2, he goes into the temple. Remember that story? Finds them changing money. He's not exactly happy with them. Gets the whip, drives them all out, chases them. They're angry. They have this theological argument, the, the people in the temple. and What are you doing? Who gave you the authority? Well, destroy this temple. In three days, I will rebuild it. Three days? It took 46 years. What are you talking about? Nobody has the clue. But here you got the truth. That the real temple of God is not made out of brick and stone. The real temple of God is His resurrection. Because at His resurrection, you will find the forgiveness of sins. You will find the Father's presence. You don't have to go anywhere to find it. You find it in a resurrected Jesus. He is the temple. He's the presence of God. In John chapter 1, verse 1, Jesus is the Word made flesh. All the way through the Gospel of John, nobody caught who Jesus was. The woman at the well said, well, when Messiah comes, and she says, well, that's me. Well, Messiah, uh, some people call him prophet, some people call him king. Some people say he came from Israel's God. Well, he's the shepherd of the sheep, he's the true vine. But nobody got the full revelation. The full identity of Jesus until after the resurrection. And when Thomas saw him, he didn't say prophet. He didn't say true vine. He didn't say shepherd of the sheep. Jesus is all those things, but they fall short of the full revelation. Once we see Jesus raised from the dead. Now wait a second. John chapter 1.18 says, Nobody at any time has seen God. I'm glad the Gospel of John doesn't end the way it started. It says nobody at any time has seen God, but by the time you get after the resurrection, somebody says, I see Him, my Lord and my God. You're not born again by the will of man. That's early in John chapter 1, 12 and 13. You're not born again by your own will. You're born again by the Spirit. That's what Jesus was teaching Nicodemus. Got to be born of water, born of the Spirit. In his life, in the Gospel of John, Jesus knew the Spirit without measure. In John chapter 7, Jesus would cry out in the Feast of Tabernacles, All who are thirsty, let him come to me and drink, and out of his innermost being shall flow rivers of living water. This speaking about the Spirit, and I repeat, I want you to note how quickly Jesus made that come to pass. He wouldn't let one day after the resurrection go by until he fulfilled that one in his disciples. Quickly. 
He spoke much about the Holy Spirit during the Last Supper in John 14 to 16. First thing that Jesus does when he meets his disciples is, I told you about the Spirit, now I'm breathing it on you now. I'm breathing it on you now. Now, what's interesting here? In the beginning of creation, God created the heavens and the earth. When man sinned, not only did man fall, but the testimony of Scripture is so did all creation fall. All the creation was made subject to vanity because of man's sin. As man goes, creation will go. And at the appearing of Jesus, when man is glorified, creation gets glorified as well. But here's the wonderful truth. By taking on a human body, he has forever entered into his creation. I want you to hear this. Jesus was not raised from the dead as a spirit. That's important. He, he, he didn't just go back to God in spirit form, in word form. Folks, he has got a body for all eternity. Do you understand what that means? He has a body for all eternity because his goal is to recreate the whole heavens and the whole earth. And the resurrection of his body is installment number one. That's going to happen at his appearing when he comes again. But in the meanwhile, that power to create is still conferred upon you and me. Because when Jesus breathes the Holy Spirit into his people, that Holy Spirit has the power to turn water into wine. That power of the Holy Spirit has got the ability to take out that old heart and give you a new one. That Holy Spirit has the power to make old things pass away and make everything become new. You don't have to wait till Jesus comes again to know the power of creation. Amen? You don't have to wait till Jesus comes again. He will work this out in your heart. He will work this out in your soul. He will work this out in your life. He will radically and powerfully change you to be something that you can't possibly be on your own. Whoever thought Peter would become a preacher? <laughs> Who'd ever thought you and I could be changed? Who'd ever thought God could take our past and make something new out of us? The power of creation is already with us in the gift of the Holy Spirit. Do you need your life to change? Do you need God to change circumstances? Does He have this power to create? How can we know He can do this? Church, the answer is simple. His resurrection is the proof that He can do it. He is raised from the dead. 
He's not limited to time or space. He's not bound by the laws of this creation. He's above it all, and he can change it at any time he so desires. Because he's raised from the dead, that's the confidence that you and I have to face our future. Because he lives, we shall live also.